Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome to another GeoMob podcast. Gosh, this is going to be an exciting one. Today, I'm welcoming John Nelson, who is a little bit of a hero to me, just a little bit. John's a cartographer of sorts, and I'd say that not to be in a critical way, it's just that his work is so unusual that at times it's so out on the edge of what we expect a map to be that it's barely cartography. And in fact, I describe it as edgy cartography. His bio says, I have far too much fun looking for ways to understand and present data visually, hopefully driving product strategy and engaging users. I work in the ArcGIS Living Atlas team at Esri, pushing and pulling data in all sorts of absurd ways and then sharing the process. I also design user experiences for maps and apps. And when I'm not doing those things, I'm chasing around toddlers, wrangling chickens and generally getting into other ad hoc adventures. Life is good. John's website is called Adventures in Mapping, Maps and Stuff, Fun Things. What's not to like about that, I think. So, John, welcome to the GeoMob podcast. Introduce yourself and tell our listeners a bit about your journey in Geo. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you so much. Life is indeed good. It is good. You know, hearing you read that intro, I realize I need to update my my profile because I'm no longer chasing toddlers. They're older and they're faster than I am now. So it's I need to I need to describe that as much more of a challenge, closer to reality. I'm chasing teenagers who are faster than me. Little kids, oh, well, you know what? My youngest is in kindergarten, so she's not a teenager yet, but sometimes it feels that way. Yeah, we're all growing older, John. We're all growing older. <laughs> yes, time. So my geographic journey, you say, okay. You know, I grew up in a geographic household, Stephen. My parents were both teachers. My father was professor of geography and earth science at Central Michigan University, which is where I ended up going. And my mother was my geography teacher in middle school and my art teacher. And they were both teachers. And so we would have summers off. And so the Nelson family would just get a running start and cram into a station wagon. And we would cruise around the country in the summertime. And it was great. It was a great childhood. I loved it. Beautiful childhood. Wonderful parents. Very geo-minded. You know, my dad would hop out and he would snap photographs with his... (laughs) Kodachrome film so he could get it developed for slides in his regional geography class and that kind of thing. He would have a little hammer that he would drop next to things and take a reference photo for scale. <laughs> so I saw that happen right. in real life. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, very geographic. I didn't necessarily think I would go into geography. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I actually thought maybe I would be an eye doctor because I had a, an injury to my eyeball when I was a kid. And I thought the whole process was kind of fascinating in hindsight. In retrospect, it was fascinating. <laughs> but yeah, geography kind of grabbed hold of me in college. It was, I think it was my second year. I was taking an intro to cartography, and it was called computerized cartography back then. Now you just kind of take that as for granted, and so they can drop it from the title, computerized cartography. And I was watching density map load in one of our labs you know you'd hit go it was this kind of very nervous i had to ask how to turn on a computer in college in the computer lab so i was very unfamiliar with the whole digital environment and so 
when I'm following this tutorial very nervously and then I hit, you know, render or go or something and I see these dots start showing up on the screen, boom, boom, boom. I thought, this is just magic. This is magical. And like the sense of awe washed over me. I loved it. It was so fun. That was it. After that, I was hooked. I mean, I was trying, going off script with the tutorials and, and trying out different things, that sort of stuff. But it was a blast. Yeah, so that's that's how you got started. the early days of the geographic journey. Stephen. Uh, what after? What about after college? What did you do after college? I was unemployed, no job for many months, and that was rough. But you know, I think a lot of people experience that sort of thing. I had no real experience, and uh, I was misspelling things on my applications. I, I found out later, <laughs> but um, I eventually got a job after my undergraduate degree with a Native American tribe on a small island in the Atlantic Ocean off the East Coast of the United States. It was such a great experience. Um, Danielle, my wife, and I started our family there. We had our, our son, Bear, was born there on the island, and it was wonderful. Turns out I got that job because I had been a garbage man on that same little island a couple times in the previous summers when I was in college. And so, you know, it's a, it's like a, a small community, and so they could ask around the foreman, hey, is this is this person... A monster? Nah, he's all right. And so I got that job. And we were there for a year. And then my alma mater, Central Michigan University, started up a master's program while I was out there in GIS. They called it the techniques, GIS, remote sensing, cartography. And they asked if I might be interested in in coming back to that. And it was very tempting, particularly because at that time of the year, you know, the, the island virtually shuts down. It's very tourist-oriented. And so you know, the the ocean is, it was beautiful, but the ocean is gray. The houses are gray. The sky is gray. Danielle and I are bouncing off the walls a little bit and everything's pretty expensive too. So we thought, man, this does sound pretty good. And so we packed up a little family and moved back to Michigan and started a master's degree at, at Central. Which took two years. Great, great experience. Cool. And I'll tell you, after that, I graduated once again, unemployed for many months. So that was another rough stretch, but things work out. Things worked out. Cool. So, John, the first time I saw any of your work and heard your name was back in 2013 at Phosphor G. And we were running a map competition. And Ken Field, who's our mutual friend and introduced us, was curating this map competition, this gallery. And you produced a map which, and I'm looking at it now, it's just fucking crazy. It's called <laughs> the Global Sharknado Threat. Well, I don't know what a Sharknado is, and I don't know what the map's showing, but it is stunning. Go on, try and... and I'm going to put the map and the other map that we're going to discuss later on, I'm going to put them okay. in the show notes so that people will be able to go and have a look at these maps afterwards to understand what you're talking about. But try and Fun. explain Sharknado... <laughs> to our <laughs> listeners. This is a real challenge. Yeah, it's a fun challenge. So you mentioned somebody named Ken Fields? Yeah, we are, Ken, there's who? just one of them. There's just one of them. <laughs> <laughs> One's enough. Ken Field. Yeah, good friend. Great guy. I owe a lot to Ken. Yeah, he, he actually suggested that I, I submit this to the Phos4G competition and ended up winning, which is a huge thrill for me. So exciting, so fun. Sharknado. So, are you really, you don't know what Sharknado is, Stephen? No, I really oh, Okay. Don't. I mean, I thought yeah. it was something like sharks and tornadoes, but maybe it's not. Well, you've nailed it. 
You've nailed it. That's that's exactly what it is. Sharknado is a series of intentionally low budget, kind of tongue in cheek, ham handed adventure films. The premise of which, Stephen, yeah. is coastal tornadoes create this low pressure vortex and suck up sea life. And that includes sharks and it deposits them inland. And so it's this movie, you know, like a, a horror action movie of you know, sharks raining down on, I think it was Los Angeles in the first one, which doesn't get too many coastal tornadoes, but I don't think they were too concerned about all that. And so uh, that's Sharknado. I think they're on like Sharknado 12 or something like that. Cause why not? You know, it costs a couple hundred dollars to produce. And so, so they crank them out and it's a, it's, it's a sort of strange cult hit. And at the time they, it was a relatively fresh cult hit Sharknado. Right. And somebody at a company named Visually, visual.ly, which is uh, no longer exists, reached out and said, hey, you should make a Sharknado map because they had seen my Hurricanes map of a similar vibe. And so I said, OK, you know, let me think about this. How can I make this sound plausible? And so I, I kind of took on a very serious 1950s uh, authoritative science kind of top down sort of tone you know like chain smoking scientists wearing white lab coats right. describing something to you in a training film kind of vibe for the copy in it and in it i just showed the various shark habitats of a couple scary looking shark species and then i plotted historic hurricane locations and, and uh rationalized it with this uh, somewhat plausible scenario that you know hurricanes do indeed spout tornadoes when they when they hit the coast and and uh tried to explain it is scientific over the top scientifically as, as I could. So my favorite part was writing the copy. So it's sort of the map almost made itself. It's sort of crack crank science in a way because you're sort of, oh yes you're correlating the sort of pattern of the hurricanes with known concentrations of sharks. I had to do something, Stephen. Yeah. Sharknado map. What do you do? Well, <laughs> but what you do is you make an exquisite map, which is just visually, it's amazing. And oh, you put it into a competition and you win the big prize. You know, I mean, that's what you do. And, you know, for anybody who hasn't seen it, this map is worth seeing. Right. The fact that the, the science may be a bit bogus. Uh, <laughs> who cares? So you mentioned read, read the, the copy. It's all entirely plausible. You mentioned the hurricane map. And yeah. I don't know where to go with this, John, because if you think that the Sharknado map was fantastic, the hurricane map just goes another level. I mean, it's I'm looking at it now, and I can barely work out that it's a map. In fact, to be honest, I'm guessing that it's some kind of a polar projection, but I don't know. It's just splashes of color, and it's exquisite. It's just exquisite. Thanks. Well, the hurricane map preceded the Sharknado map. So if you like the hurricane map even better, that's a pretty good trajectory of my career. It just gets <laughs> sillier and weirder. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for those kind words. It was it was a lot of fun. So this was one of the early examples of what I what I eventually started calling firefly cartography because it just looks like a bunch of little glowing dots. And the reason I got there is I was just trying to make something as interesting looking and fun and tangible and cinematic as possible. So I'd watch these movies and I noticed a trend, you know, in these spy thrillers or something or like the earth is exploding kind of movies and they always they always stroll up to this big uh, computer screen 
with a map, people are quickly clacking keys and the map zooms in and it shows this area of impact and everything's kind of dark and cyan. You've got satellite imagery there and the, the cool kind of pseudo content sitting on top of it is, is glowing a little bit and it has this cool, eerie, somewhat scientific looking war room sort of feel, which is what the set designers are going for. And so I just, you know, stole a book or I stole a page from their book and said, well, let's just make a map that looks really cinematic. And the way I would describe that technique is, you know, you have a very dark, nearly desaturated base map so that it's the stage. Because a lot of the times a base map will show up the content, you know, yeah. overpower it, which is a real problem. And so it's really receded, pushed back. So you hardly notice that it's there. Only if you look closer, because you're looking for context, you'll find the context. Otherwise, it's almost totally black. And then the data that sits on top of it is just one or two themes. And it's very bright and punchy. And it was a, a filter glow effect with a, a white, glowing, hot white center. And then you've got this kind of color band that radially decays at a distance around all of the features. And I did that because it looked neat. I thought it looked cool and fun, Stephen. But then... You know, afterwards, you can rationalize all kinds of things. You know, this is what I do. I'm a rationalization engine. I, afterwards, I said, well, it actually makes a lot of sense geographically because cartographically, you want to have a good ground and four structure. So the base map recedes and it showcases the phenomenon and the phenomenon is bright and glowing. And I can rationalize that by saying, well, it's the first law of geography. Everything is related to everything else, but nearer things are more closely related. So if you've ever live by an airport, for instance. You know that an airport isn't this impossibly precise point fixed oh. in place. An airport is this phenomenon that has a white, hot, glowing airportness around it, and then it gets less and less airporty as you go away from it. You know, the sound and the infrastructure to support it, that sort of thing. Yeah. Every phenomenon has a, a, a distance lag decay associated with it, and this technique kind of mirrors that, and it's fun. Yeah, and... It's certainly fun. And you talk about rationalizing it. But for me, what I'm looking at is the fact that you've got an instinct that saw that that looked good. You knew it looked good. Maybe you rationalized afterwards to understand why it looked good. But as an artist, rather than just a, a map maker, you had a sense that this looked good. You knew what you were trying to achieve. This firefly technique that has become so associated with your your work and your edgy cartography job. Did you have all the tools in your box to do that? Or did you actually have to invent things and work out ways of doing important all of that stuff? Or was it stuff that was in the box? Well it was little it was little pieces and bits of experience that come out of playing around. So taking time to play around with the tools that you use to map, whatever those are, is so important. And I hear from people a lot like, oh, I would like to try that, but I just don't have time. I'm like, oh, man, you don't have time. Yeah. You have to make time. I don't have time. You know, I didn't have time when I was working at my previous company and making these things. I stole it outright. I stole that time goofing around, trying things, because I had experience with not having time. You know, I... I was working at a company that was doing a lot of consulting and a lot of bespoke work for customers. And it's uh, the conveyor belt. You, you complete your task and you're on to the next task. And there's very little time for rumination and second 
guessing or hindsight and saying, you know, I wish I would have taken the time to try this other thing. Or you learn a technique on the next project that you really think would have been good in the previous one. If you could just go back and kind of prototype something and show it to them. People get stuck on this treadmill of no time. And I think it's important, I've seen, it's been so important to me, is you train you train your coworkers and you train your managers what to expect of you. And if you train them that you're going to get something done and just go to the next that's thing, then that's expect. their job is to keep feeding you things. Yeah. That's not their fault. That's, that's, that's what you've asked them to do for you. And so if you prioritize taking some time, taking a moment and trying a technique that you haven't tried out before trying a you know a glow a, a silly little glow filter oh that actually is kind of neat i i tried it out on a initially on a data set of tornadoes so we cartographers and geographers we like to separate things and aggregate things and comp- compartmentalize them and refine them down to just a few interesting nuggets and that's what all my training said but then one day i was looking at this big pile of historic tornado data this is the first example of that style of map and I just dropped in a little glow effect on it. Boom. And the whole map just came to life instead of this kind of thicket yeah. of data. It started, it, it said, boom, I'm here. And I could see patterns emerge all of a sudden. It was just this wonderful moment. And you stick that in your brain as a little tool that you can use again in the future. So, so playing around and taking time is so important. Is so important as well, because I don't know whether you know, there's a guy in Edinburgh called Tom Armitage. He's a cartographer, teaches. Yes, I love Tom. Tom is great. A lot, and he's been a big supporter of Phosphagy and the conferences that we've run in the UK. And he spent a lot of time inspired. I I was going to say copying, but I'm going to say inspired by your work, right? And he's, he's now run workshops where he teaches people how to make Firefly-style maps using open-source tools. And I sat in on one of those workshops, and it was the most brilliant workshop that I've ever done. You know, And I mean, yeah, at the end of two or three hours of this workshop, when I'd produced a map which looked sort of vaguely like the kind of stuff that you were doing, but that I'd created this Firefly technique, I was so blown away. But what I realized doing that, and this is, I think, you know, a message for everybody, was that we all tend to use the tools that we know and that we're comfortable with, and we very often use the presets that come with those tools, and we never experiment. So there were glow settings and blending settings and all sorts of other settings buried deep in QGIS, and I'm sure they're there in ArcGIS and in every other software package, which I'd never, ever taken the time to just find out what happens if I switch these things on, you know, I, and the moment you start playing <laughs> yeah. with me, like, Oh, I could do this or I could do that. Or doesn't that look great? And then, then those dark backgrounds, all of a sudden, you know why you need those dark backgrounds because you want the, the foreground data to stand out and be clear. I mean, but the real thing is just experiment and try things because you'll discover all sorts of neat things you can do. Isn't that a fun feeling is yeah. that, Oh, and it might not be useful for the map you're working on if you're even working on a map. But you tuck that away and think, ooh, you know, I could use this for another map. I'm going to remember this, this sort of thing. And you don't experiment is it sounds so scientific, but it's I, it's not the right word. Like you yeah. said, it's play. You're, you're goofing around trying something. Well, what happens if I try this? It wasn't intended for this, but I'm just going to do it. 
And they're like, ooh, that's actually kind of cool. I had I had that sensation a few months ago. So I was playing with hill shades. Right. I like to do hill shades. I had a digital elevation model, and then I would run a slope calculation on it to show me where all the steep slopes are versus flat areas. And then I would run a hill shade on it. Or, and then I thought, what if I run a hill shade on a slope or a slope on a hill shade or run a hill shade on a hill shade? And you get these weird sort of recursive results, but some of them looked really good. Like, oh my goodness, I just accidentally made a vertical edge detection algorithm. The people who made these tools are, you know, just, they've, they've got a specific set of requirements. Oh, I've got to do a slope and I've got to do a hill shape, but they weren't intending people to run a hill shape on the slope, but you can, mm. you can do it. And it turns out the result was useful. So you keep that in your toolkit and you keep going and you use it in the future. That was a fun moment and man boy have i spammed the community yeah. with that silly little sequence but it's it's just fun and but helpful you, you you've used that word fun so many times since we've been chatting john i mean you you oh, obviously no. have a great time doing your job yeah oh i love it i mean who's got it better than us yeah. geographers you get to yeah. study and make little models of this world that we live in the world is yeah. so amazing and to have the opportunity to understand it a little bit better. Like any science is such a thrill. And then the opportunity to make a little picture of that. I mean, who's, it's so great. You know, sometimes, some days I'll have like a busy day frequently when I have a lot of meetings, although I, I pride myself on having very <laughs> few meetings where I think, ugh, and then I have to remind myself, like smack myself in the face. What are you complaining about? You get to play around making maps yeah. all day. They happen to be for customers or for the purpose of writing how-to tutorials for folks. But hey, you get to yeah. do this. Yeah. You know, it could be yeah. so much worse. We've got it made. Geographers yeah, have it I made. I think you do. And, you know, shout out to Esri. You know, the fact is that they've got several brilliant cartographers. You know, there's you. There's Ken Field, who's okay. I mean, he's a mate of mine, but he's okay. There's ED. And there's other people. You know, I mean, it's like... You're, it's not like one cartographer in your company. You know, I know it's a map software business, but you produce stunning maps, all of you guys. It's it's absolutely a delight. Thanks. Oh, it's so it's yeah. great. Yeah, and the colleagues. So I chat frequently with a colleague, Warren Davison. You know, Tommy Fuval, Heather Smith is an amazing cartographer. Sarah Bell. I mean, there's there's just so many, and they're all working on different you know projects throughout Esri. It's not like they just you know make maps all day. When they do, boy, is it interesting and fun, and I can learn so much from them and outside of the company as well, too. I mean, it's just really wonderful community of folks and, and helpful yeah, colleagues. Of course, yeah. Wes Jones. So we've mentioned a couple of times our friend Ken. And when... Yes, Kenneth. Dr. K. Dr. K. Uh, when, he, when I was chatting with him before a couple of weeks ago, he said that you learn everything you know from him. Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> you know, actually, that sounds yeah. pretty on brand. That's, that's, very, that's very Kenneth. Yeah. No, he, he's great. He, uh, I do owe so much to him. So we collaborate pretty frequently mm. when I'm working on something. I'll throw it over to him and say, hey, how about this? And he'll say, you yeah. fool, yeah. normalize There's this. Yeah, normalize like gets no, into we, almost we have a lot everything, of doesn't it, with Ken? 
I have definitely normalized it before I ever send it to Ken. You can count on that. No, he's great. He's actually a big reason why I have this opportunity to work here at Esri. You know, he, he was here before I was, and I was in a, a job where I was a little bit unhappy and kind of felt trapped, but like, uh, you know, who's going to hire me? It's so specific. I'm just going to while away my time here. And I was very unsatisfied. And I, I reached out to him and I said, Hey, Ken, if you ever see an opportunity come up in Ezra, just, you know, shoot me the application link and I'll, I'll check it out. Thanks. And to his credit, man, or, you know, discredit, who knows? He really took that and ran with it and chatted with all sorts of folks. And pretty soon I was there interviewing and it was an honor. So, yeah, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. He is. I would never say it publicly, but between you and me, he's a he's a good guy. But publicly, he's, yeah, oh, he's just the worst. I mean, Officially, he's a Nottingham Forest yeah, he's supporter, the worst. which if you're an English soccer fan, that's another reason. Yeah, that's another not, reason no. not to like him. But he's one of my <laughs> oldest and best mates, so I'll let that go. So I want to ask you a question. Is what you do art or is it cartography? I don't know. I never... I don't think of it in that sense. First of all, I don't even know what art is. You know what I mean? That's such a loaded term now. Is Art is this medium whereby a person expresses themselves or reflects the society that they're within or something. And to a large extent, that's all maps are. Is it more of a, a literal representation of something or a figurative or representational version of that emotion or social construct? It's both of those. I think art and cartography are so intertwined that it's difficult to separate them. And a lot of people, so just, so art and cartography are both such loaded and scary terms for people who actually make, especially people who make for a living, Stephen. They think, well, I make maps and I I do GIS and and I deliver map. I wouldn't consider myself a cartographer or people paint and sketch and have fun or make maps. But I would never consider myself an artist, you know. But if you are producing a map, make no mistake, you are a cartographer. There's nothing sacred about that term. There's no membership that you have to apply to and be granted. If you've made a map, like my daughter Clover did a few days ago, she was a cartographer right then when she made that map. She was doing cartography. So what? Big deal. You know, it's it's a term. It just means you make maps. And it's not a big, scary elite club or anything. It's just people who nerd out on something pretty specific. And it's it's fun to nerd out with other people who are interested so in the same sorts of things sort as you of are. I think, listening to what you just said, I, I was thinking, there's a spectrum here. My wife paints. I think she paints brilliantly, but yeah, that's irrelevant. Yeah, I do yeah. too. I've but seen her work and it the is thing beautiful. Is, yeah. When you look at her stuff, the first thing is, wow. That's interesting. Then you look into it and you start digging and you start mm. seeing things that maybe you hadn't seen the first time. And then maybe a little bit of a story or something comes out of the picture and everything like that. Right. So that's from the visual to the story, to the detail. And they're not representational, her, her pictures at all. When mm. you look at a classic cartographer's map, the ones that we understand as maps, You start with an image which is there specifically to convey information. It's not something that you would want to put on the wall in your living room as a form of decoration, for example, but it does convey information. And somewhere in the middle, you've got 
maps which become more and more abstract, and I think I would describe your maps as becoming pretty abstract. They've still got geographic shape and context to them, but visually, you know, I could put your map on the wall in my study or in our living room in a frame, and it needn't have a legend. It would be a beautiful image, and yet when I get close to it and I start digging into it, exactly the same as with Donna's pictures, you start to open up another story that's behind the map, the story about the hurricanes or the story about the um, the thing. So I think, it, you know, having asked the question, I'm going to answer it by saying I think it's a spectrum. You're very much at the arty end of cartography. And I think that's a great thing, you know, that it can be both such a creative medium and it can give people pleasure, you know, just sitting looking at it, you know. So all power to you. So yeah. my... My last question for you, Thank John, you. the wrap-up, is what tips would you give to those people who look at your maps and simply say they could never envisage, let alone begin to make maps that look so fantastic? <sighs> Stephen, nobody would ever say that. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because literally every, and I mean literally in its literal sense, literally every map that I make has attached to it a process describing exactly how I got there from start to finish. That's the most fun. I'll make a map and that's a lot of fun. But what's become the most fun to me is illustrating and communicating to the community of of folks who might want to try this or find a technique useful in their field, how I did it. And I get so much joy from seeing, you know, a presentation at a map conference, maybe, you know, Ken will describe the way he did something. And it's so often out of left field and I have no idea Oh my gosh, he's he's just totally misusing the buffer tool to get that. Duh, I should have seen that. But it looked beautiful and artful. Daniel Huffman does the same sort of thing. He's got these maps that look magnificent. And I my initial instinct is to say, I can never make anything like that. But then he shows us how he did it. And it's just a series of steps like any other map. But he's you know thoughtfully arranged that sequence to get a result that looks wonderful. And everybody can do that. Everybody can do that. And once you know that sequence, you can mix it up, remix it into whatever process makes sense to you, whatever phenomenon that you're mapping, you know, you can apply that technique. So we can, okay. People can do it. In which case, what I'm going to ask you to do after the podcast is just put in a couple of links (laughs) to a couple of maps that people could browse to and then try and follow the instructions that accompany them to see how they can reproduce those maps. And certainly, whilst I'm whilst I'm asking you, if if not for all the listeners, I'm asking you for me so that I can have some fun playing whilst I'm whilst I'm sitting here. Okay. <laughs> okay. Cool. John, fun. it's been yes. an absolute pleasure having you on the on the podcast. Likewise, what I'm going likewise, to say thanks. to you is we also run a meetup group called Geomob, and the next time that you're coming through London. I want you to let me know in advance so that we can get you in front of an audience and they can see your your work up on a big screen and you hear you talking about it. So next time you're coming through London, let me know and we'll get you onto the Geomob. Okay. Goodness, sign me up. Gosh, remember yeah. tra- remember oh, and, traveling? Oh, and let me <laughs> just that, add, there's always beer involved. Okay. Oh, perfect. Yes, okay. then doubly. Sign me up doubly so and I have it ready when I get there. If people want to reach out to you and contact you, what's the best way to do that? Well, I have a blog called adventuresinmapping.com. You can reach out 
to me there. I'm pretty active on Twitter, John underscore M underscore Nelson. If you just Google John Nelson Maps, you'll find some different mechanisms to to get a hold of me. And please do. I love it. When when people reach out to me and say, how do you do this? Or I made this. Uh, what do you think? It's so fun and engaging. I love it. Brilliant. So please, please John, reach out. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thanks very much for your time. Great. Bye. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Stephen at Stephen Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.